As we noted earlier this week, early voting began yesterday, and there was a bigger crowd than expected at Cuyahoga County's Board of Elections. It's Today in Ohio, the news podcast discussion from Cleveland.com and The Plain Dealer. I'm Chris Quinn. I'm here with Laura Johnston, Courtney Estalfi, and Lisa Garvin. Lots of news to talk about, including a very unusual story to start. It's too weird not to start with. What do we know about the unusual creature named Punchy that was wandering the streets of Cleveland? Laura. So if you're just going to look at a picture of Punchy, you'd be like, Punchy's a cow. Well, Punchy's actually a bull, which is a male cow. And we don't probably need to go into more specifics than that, because the whole point is this is just weird that this bull is cruising around the streets of Cleveland. So shortly before 6 p.m. Monday, police responded to this radio call regarding a cow, because that's what someone saw and said, there's a cow on the street on the run. East 23rd, 123rd and Oakland Avenue in Glenville. So officers responded, and one of the responding officers, his name is Stephen Fedorko, actually has previous experience raising livestock, multiple sheep, goats, chickens, and one peacock. And that's according to the police report that John Tucker looked at. So they cornered him. Uh, He was bedding down, and uh, they found out his name was Punchy, as evidenced by this ear tag. And I love that, you know, we've talked before about the horses, that the mounted division that the police have. But apparently this comes in handy when you're trying to wrangle a bull. You can get your mounted division and get this this bull under control and put him in police custody inside this paddock at the mounted unit stables. It's just bizarre. And we still don't know how it came to be roaming the streets of Cleveland, Correct. who owns it. And I'm presuming somebody was transporting this Elsie looking cow in through the city and somehow stopped, opened the door and it wandered away while they were working on their truck or something. You would also think it's very valuable and that they would say, oh, you found him. Can I have him back, please? Well, and so I guess somebody contacted the police saying that Punchy escaped his van on route to a farm and police are supposed to or tr- attempting to verify this claim because I guess if you, you know, you have this big news about a bull running around, anybody could raise their hand and be like, Oh, that's my bull. Like definitely I lost my bull. I don't know. Like, I don't know how you prove it. There's probably papers. What if it's a drug dealer using the bull to protect his stash the way some people have used alligators? <laughs> it's like a whole new meaning of the word mule. It's just such a strange. I mean, this would be as almost as unusual as an elephant wandering the streets of Cleveland. Can you imagine driving down the road and seeing that and go, you know, just being taken aback? What is going on? The what I appreciated was the police had a sense of humor in putting together the police report, which our reporter John Tucker ran with the theme. They they had a little bit of fun describing it. I mean, they spend so much time these days dealing with tragedy and really horrific things. So it must have been an interesting break to go, what? What are we chasing? Well, and it, you know, we've talked a lot about the vacant land in Cleveland and urban farms. And you wonder, like, at some point, is somebody going to be like, we got enough lots here together. We can have a pasture. We can have cows in the city of Cleveland. That would be very interesting, but I, we're and not there yet. That's a big leap from chickens, Laura. <laughs> <laughs> and vegetables. All right. You're listening to Today in Ohio. I voted on issue one yesterday in person at the Board of Elections. They told me they expected 400 people, but by four o'clock, they had more than 800 people. I should say, too, I was in and out in minutes. They were incredibly helpful, well prepared. It's so easy to go do that. I highly recommend it. But it's a good thing I didn't rely on the phone, the pro issue one people to send me a mail in ballot application. They have some egg on their faces, Lisa, although I guess there's an update that it might not be 
permanent egg on their faces. Well, the group called Protect Our Constitution, which is the pro-issue one group, they sent a mailer with an incorrect copy of the absentee ballot request form. They used a 2017 version, which became obsolete with passage of House Bill 458 last year. That requires the use of a specific state-mandated form. So uh, Protect Our Constitution spokesman Spencer Gross say, I don't know how many mailers went out, but he said it was small in scope, sent to a limited universe of voters. And it appears, according to the Secretary of State, that it mostly was mailed out to Licking and Seneca counties. The state will reach out to elections officials in those counties and help them get the correct form to affected voters. House Bill 458 also tightened photo ID requirements for in-person voting and outlawed most special elections, like the one we're going to have August 8th. In late June, a Cleveland Community paper published the 2017 form. Uh, Cuyahoga County ended up having to reject 30 of those obsolete applications. The Secretary of State says they that the county elections boards must make an effort to provide them with the correct form. Yeah, our State House Bureau Chief got in touch late yesterday and said there might be an update in which they they accept the pro issue one forms. We're we're gonna figure it out today. We we published the applications in the Plain Dealer on successive Sundays. I think we did it five times, but we only did it after getting the Secretary of State's office to say yes. That's the correct form. And because I've been hearing from people who are worried now because others have done the wrong one. If you used our form, you're good because we got it approved ahead of time by the secretary of state. I also think we should talk for a minute. We keep, we talk about the pro issue one people. And I just like to point out another time that there is no argument that's legitimate in favor of issue one. Everything they say is total horse hockey. And when you when you stack up the nonsense they say about protecting the Constitution from outside interests and and, you know, that you should compare it to the U.S. Constitution, it's malarkey. And we've we've produced just tons of content to show that substantive stuff that shows that those arguments are preposterous in the extreme. So if somebody is trying to tell you to vote for issue one, you ought to question their motives because there is no legitimate reason to do this. We've had the system for more than a century. It works well and it puts the power in the voter. Mike Curtin wrote a whole piece over the weekend about how this came to be. And it's because Ohio voters didn't trust their lawmakers. They did this so that we could rein them in. That's what this is all about. Who's in charge of this state? The voters are these elected leaders. So be very skeptical whenever you see somebody telling you this is good for Ohio. Well, the only tagline I've seen for uh, for the pro-issue on people is protect our Constitution, which sounds good, but there's no context around it because they want to protect the Constitution from special moneyed interest while taking over a million dollars from an Illinois businessman, you know, to support their cause. So that's the only three words they have to fall back on. Well, and they're trying to protect the Constitution from us. And we're in charge. We're the voters. <laughs> it's the idea They're trying to protect themselves. They're so drunk with power and they're gerrymandered supermajorities. But it's just, there's such a false equivalency to say, oh, well, there's pros and cons. There just is not an mm-hmm. argument for this. It, it's a lie. And that's why I think they're fumbling so badly and, and you know, idiotically sending out the wrong ballot application. 
You're listening to Today in Ohio. Have the people pushing for participatory budgeting found support as they sought signatures needed to put that measure on the Cleveland ballot? Courtney, we're seeing some bedlam with the last charter change with the police civil service commission and the, the, the civilian control kind of breaking down. This could produce some more bedlam for, for Cleveland if all of a sudden a huge portion of the budget is out of the control of city council. Yeah. You know, city hall is not generally for this. Bibbs finance chief is warning against this councils against this generally. And at the same time, People's Budget Cleveland, the group behind this participatory budgeting charter amendment, got the support they needed, it sounds like, or came at least pretty close with their signature gathering. So I will be curious to see if voters go for it. Well, we saw with issue 24 that made it on the ballot, voters went for it overwhelmingly. So I wouldn't be surprised if if this charter amendment passes too, if it manages to get on the ballot. But what we're looking at here is the start of getting this on the ballot, right? So this group, People's Budget Cleveland, went out and gathered over 10,500 signatures. They needed 5,900 to get it on the ballot. Now, those signatures still have to be validated, make sure they're from you know registered voters and those things like that. The, the organizers of this group will have time, about two weeks to go out and collect more signatures if they didn't quite clear the bar. But it seems like it... It's probably headed to the ballot. And let's remind folks what this is all about. This is setting aside the equivalent of 2% of the city's general fund to let residents decide and vote directly how to spend it. Like you said, that those decisions would no longer be with city council signing off. So how this would work is, you know, any resident age 13 years or older, those who can vote, those who can't vote in regular municipal elections, Everybody could weigh in here. And the hope is that this gets people more civically engaged in government and, and, and local decision making processes, just given Cleveland's low, low turnout rates at the polls. They want to kind of spark some interest in local civics here with this with this idea to get folks involved. At the same time, you know, the backers of this idea say this the city the city residents know best on, on where they want their taxpayer money to go. So let them have some of the say here. If you use this year's budget as a comparison for how much money we're talking about could be decided by voters, this year that figure would be about $14 million. So we're not we're not talking about small amounts here. It, well, but that's because city council blew it on this one. I've generally thought that the city council under Blaine Griffin's leadership has done a lot of things right. But when the mayor came in and said, I'd like to put a tiny amount of money into participatory budgeting, what was it, 500000 I think, they rejected it. Like, oh, no, they're not taking that authority away from us. We're the ones. If you want to do something on the budget, get elected to something, which was dumb because the reaction was, okay, we'll put a charter change on and we'll take a gigantic chunk of the money. The city council should have done this. This was, this was a good proposal. It would get people more involved in the process, and it was a tiny amount of money. This is going to put a sizable chunk of money into jeopardy, and there's nothing they'll be able to do about it. Yeah, absolutely. Let's remember that original pilot program that bid pitched and council rejected earlier this year was using uh, that small slice of American Rescue Plan Act aid basically testing it out with money that isn't locally generated. We had this windfall from the federal government try it out with that money. This is the general fund. This is income taxes. Yeah. This is property taxes. This is police and fire. 
However, I think it's I think it's worth noting here, and the folks behind participatory budgeting, they respond. The finance chief is saying that this this could be a really big problem in arriving at a balanced budget. It could jeopardize everyday city services. But the people who back this say the money doesn't have to come directly out of the general fund, and that's how this proposed charter amendment's written. It can come out of say council's discretionary dollars. <laughs> <laughs> okay. This is one where council really blew it. That self-interest puffed up bravado is really going to bite them because I do agree with you. I think this will pass. Interesting story. You're listening to Today in Ohio. How does Cleveland get the moniker of the most stressed city in America from Wild Hub, which is more respected than most of the groups that put out these ratings? Laura, I'm not feeling terribly stressed. Are you? No, but I had yesterday off. So that that really helped. But Cleveland ranked first in the most stress among 182 U.S. cities measured by WalletHub. This compared 39 metrics across all of these cities grouped into four equally weighted ca- categories. There was work stress, financial stress, family stress, health and safety stress. So Cleveland actually ranked first among cities in financial stress. And I think divorce was really up there. I hadn't realized that we rank so highly in divorce, but our work-related stress is only 47th out of the 182. So that's not terrible. And, you know, I feel like Detroit and Cleveland are always neck and neck for some of the, the accolades you don't want to get. And so Detroit is number two on this list. I guess we should look at divorce in in this region. I had no idea that we were a leader of that in uh, Northeast Ohio. Um, it's it, this, I like Wallet Hub generally. This one seems a little bit bogus to me. Uh, I've, I'm from the East Coast and I know what the stress is of living in yeah. the East Coast cities and driving in that traffic. And, you know, we have a fairly laid back situation here. So maybe, maybe they shouldn't call it most stressed. Maybe they should call come up with something that's more accurate. Well, and we talk about health and safety too. And so when we, you know, every time we talk about poverty in Cleveland and we look at like infant mortality and all of those things go into the stress that people carry on a daily basis and how that affects their health. And, you know, you're right. We have wonderful things here. We have great parks. Um, the traffic is not bad. So I would, I would agree that, you know, living in New York city would probably feel a lot more stressful, but yeah, divorce. I that really surprised me too. You're listening to Today in Ohio. We talked about parks. Good segue. We love the lakefront, and the Mandel Foundation apparently does too. Lisa, what does the foundation have in mind for the $24 million it announced for the lakefront this week? Yeah, that $24 million in, is in grant money will basically be focused on the east side, generally from the East 55th Street Marina to Gordon Park. So $13 million of that money will go to improve Gordon Park and build a 2.7-mile trail from downtown to the East 55th Marina. That money will be received and administered by Cleveland Metro Parks. $10 million is going to the Western Reserve Land Conservancy. $6.2 million will be to relocate mobile home park residents who were living in that little community at Euclid Beach and Villa Angela Park. And then $3.8 million from a matching grant will make the Western Reserve 
Conservancy whole because they bought that property in 2021 for $5.8 million to keep it out of the hands of out of state developers. Michael Russell, the legal aid attorney for the residents at the park, said this money should be used to keep the residents in their homes. He says, We want to explore displacement alternatives. The relocation process does begin in about two weeks. They're going to be sending certified letters to these residents to let them know, you know, what, what's happening. Yeah, I look, I salute the Mandel Foundation for providing solutions in this. I mean, the people who live there are never going to be happy if they can't stay, but the Conservancy really wants to preserve lakefront land from development, so they're they're not going to let go of that. But at least they're just not high and dry. At least there will be some assistance to help them, which I wasn't sure where that money would come from, and the Mandel Foundation is stepping up. It's uh, it's great to see investment in the lakefront. We keep talking about it being our greatest asset, and we still do not really use it right. I, and I'm going to say this again, and I've said it before, and I understand, you know, the whole situation with the mobile home park, but it is not impeding lakefront access. I'm just going to say that. The park flows right around it. There's a path right in front of it, right next to the lake. So I just, I think it's a specious argument. Okay. You're listening to Today in Ohio. We talked Tuesday about Cleveland Mayor Justin Bibb's strategies for adding more police and retaining those already working. But he also talked about some criminal justice strategies as the city, like many in America, battles a violent crime wave. Courtney, you wrote a story about it. What are the highlights? Yeah, we know this mayor is really, you know, in the face of this understaffing of the police department, Bibb has really kind of hammered home the importance of supplementing our our police efforts with technology. And a lot of what he talked to us about with his criminal justice strategies had to do with employing technology in in different ways. Some we know about, some was new information. So, you know, Bib this week talked about that expansion of ShotSpotter across the city. And the police chief told us that since that was rolled out in May, May May-ish, that four lives had been saved. So they talked about that. The city says it's, you know, it's preparing now to hire those five crime analysts that Bib announced back in February. So so that'll be a boon to the districts, as Bib describes it, to help officers kind of zero in on crime hotspots using more analysis-based kind of tools, I assume social media and trying to figure out where problems could arise. And the city is, again, encouraging residents and businesses to proactively allow Cleveland police to have access to surveillance footage from their cameras or ring doorbells and and things like that. But, you know, Bib also talked about kind of partnerships he, he continues to want to employ. He's been doing that since last summer, but he wants to team up even more, it sounds like, with the Ohio State Highway Patrol, the Marshal Service, the FBI on things like traffic enforcement, guns and drugs and things like that. Some of the new strategies that the mayor talked about were interesting. He, you know, he talked about the, this rash of car thefts. A lot of kids are getting in trouble for stealing these Kias and Hyundais and just, just Grand Theft Auto in general. And Bib said he's looking to get those convicted on more ankle monitors. Now that's something the juvenile court and prosecutor has to do. He said that, that there's a pilot program already ongoing to get more of these kids monitored so they can keep track of where they are and make sure they're not going out and reoffending. Though Bib also told another news organization that they were in early conversations there. So I don't know what the status of that program is, but he's looking to do it. He also said he's 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 begun to reach out to CMHA and RTA to see if they'll start cracking down on 
juvenile curfew violations. I don't know um, what status that is, but it looks like he's, you know, looking at kids out wreaking havoc, they said, and wants to crack down on kids out after dark. Yeah, and he he said he's going to try and convene the, the police chief's mayors from the entering suburbs and the specialty departments like Cleveland Clinic and Metro Health and those and some others together with business to talk about it. What what I, what struck me about this is when Bib was running for mayor and we talked about policing, he talked about trying to use more technology to to deal with things, to use more intelligence, to do more crime analysis. ShotSpotter has been something that has been controversial in other cities. People question its efficacy. It's expensive. The company makes lots of large claims. So I was shocked when the police chief said four lives were saved and I wasn't buying it. And so we asked, hey, how's that so? And he said, oh, that's easy. It's where, where ShotSpotter tells us a gun has been fired and nobody dials 911. But we go there and we find somebody who's shot and bleeding and police work on saving them while summoning EMS. And EMS tells the police that person would have died if you hadn't gotten here when you did. If that's true, and we're asking for the records of that because we want to tell that story, it would be hard to argue against using ShotSpotter. I mean, if we're at, it's treating a symptom. I get it. It's not stopping the shootings. But if we're saving lives because of it, because people aren't calling 911, how can you argue against it? I mean, that seems like a really positive here. Like you said, it has been controversial. It, it, it raised concerns when council was considering and passing this legislation last year. One, one thing that I'm really curious that I can't I can't get out of my brain on ShotSpotter is if if all these calls are now going to police where residents were dialing nine were not dialing nine one one for gunfire, does that just does that force police to chase after a bunch of noises all shift? Does that change the priority of live folks calling into nine one one? I'm curious how that impacts their workload. Yeah, I, I agree. I mean, it, it raises questions, but if if it's true, if it's you can demonstrate. You're saving people. Man, that's 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 a big deal. So you're listening to Today in Ohio. The latest installment of our Rethinking Child Care series is about finding people to staff child care centers. Laura, what's it about? This idea is that it's really hard to hire for child care uh, centers. And because they don't pay very much. The average wage for a staffer is about $12.52 an hour. And so you know, you can go more, make more than that at Target or McDonald's without any kind of training. And you do need training to be a child care staffer. You also need a background check. You need fingerprints. You need, you know, some orientation. So these centers are always advertising. It costs them hundreds of dollars to have their ads out on the Internet. And then they get someone in, they interview them, they pay for the training, they pay for the background check, they pay for the orientation where they're paying them to learn how to work. And then it might not be a good fit. They might quit after a couple of weeks. And so that's a real stress on these centers that have no money to begin with. So this new service, basically, it's an app called Tandem, finds people who want to work, does the background check, makes sure they're all, you know, have everything they need. And then people can choose their shifts. They can say, look, this center needs someone from 10 to 2 on Wednesday, and those people can decide to pick up the shift, and then Tandem pays them. So the centers pay Tandem, and obviously they're going to be paying a higher rate than they would be if they were paying directly, but they no longer have all of that overhead cost of just the gearing up to hire someone. 
Yeah, that, you demonstrated from the outset, from I think your very first story, that the hiring is very difficult, largely because of the pay. I think you used the line that you make more money working at McDonald's, right? You've used that mm-hmm. a number of times. And th- this is interesting because this gets at one of the central issues of what your project has uncovered. It does. Because really, I think from the articles, from talking to people, the real solution is we need to be better as a state in what we pay for public subsidies for child care centers, because we pay them at the 25% mark of what all child care centers charge. So it, it like some centers don't break even if they're accepting public subsidy kids. And then you can't charge everybody else more because you're not getting enough money from the state. So then they have to find these very creative ways to kind of fill the gaps. And and this is a great idea. It's a startup by a bunch of young, just out of college kids, basically. It does raise other issues about whether someone's a 1099 employee, whether they should have a W-2, if they really, this is part of the gig economy. It's not a long-term solution. I salute them for coming up with this. This is great for substitutes. This is great for filling in gaps. But I, I don't, I don't think that the, <laughs> this is the solution long-term. I think we as a society need to recognize the value of taking care of our kids and letting people go to work. Okay, so you and Senate President Matt Huffman should get together. I'm sure he'll be amenable <laughs> to this. <laughs> You're listening to today in Ohio. We've been talking so much about the negative aspects of issue one. I don't think we've talked about Jim Jordan in a couple of months. Lisa, why does the Ohio congressman want to move the FBI headquarters from Washington, D.C. to Alabama? Well, it's all part of his crusade against the alleged weaponization of the FBI and the DOJ. So uh, it's part of his, he's chair of the House Judiciary Committee, and he proposed amendments to a spending bill that would remove funding for a new FBI headquarters that's been talked about for at least six years. In a letter to the House Appropriations Chair, Kay Granger, Jordan says that centralizing FBI operations in the D.C. area has allowed improper political influence to taint law enforcement (laughs) activity and investigations. And he asked to strip any funding that's not essential to the FBI mission and consider options to move it outside of D.C. He demands an operational plan from the FBI in 90 days to move their headquarters and consider an existing facility at the FBI's Redstone Arsenal campus in Huntsville, Alabama, where, you know, home of Tommy Tuberville um, and also home to a thousand workers. But Congress back in 2022 approved a spending bill that instructs, you know, the federal and government real estate arm to select a site for the FBI headquarters as soon as possible from three identified locations that were ID'd back in 2016. And none of them are in Huntsville, Alabama. They're in the D.C. area. I do suspect that Jordan is doing this for what I said. Nobody's been talking about him lately and he wants to get back <laughs> on Fox News. It's, uh, you know, what am I going to do to get attention for myself? What ridiculous anti can I play to get get headlines? And it's just another dopey thing from the Ohio congressman. And it would be foolish to move centralized law enforcement out of D.C. I mean, they have bureaus all over. We have one in downtown Cleveland. But do they really need to move the headquarters to a deep red state? I don't no, think it's so. No, a, it's a dopey idea. You're listening to Today in Ohio. All right, Courtney, we don't have a lot of time left, and the next one is complicated. Are you going to be able to address it in in short order? Yeah, I'm going to try. (laughs) All right. 
We were a bit amazed at Cleveland's audacity in trying to fend off a lawsuit against Cleveland Bulk Power by ratepayers by passing a retroactive law that removed the ability of residents to pursue the lawsuit. We thought the effort was justifiably blocked by the courts, but an appeals court now disagrees. Why? Yeah, this is somewhat of a, a big win for the city, at least for now. So this retroactive law, last year, Cuyahoga County Common Pleas Judge Deb Deborah Turner told the city they couldn't fall back on this retroactive clause and and force all of these plaintiffs who have been in litigation for years and years now for potentially decades old charges. The city couldn't derail the lawsuit and send those cases to arbitration. But but that was a win for the plaintiffs. The appellate court came back here and said the county judge erred when she made that decision. You have to have a whole trial on that issue before you can even proceed to the big trial on the plaintiff's claims that could be disastrous for CPC if they emerge victorious, the city the city says. But, you know, I don't understand how this ruling can stand. If a police, if the police shot a family member of yours and you sued the city over that, could city council pass a law then that says you, you you have to negotiate arbitration and you can't sue the city and that, and, and that would pass? I mean, the courts are supposed to be the arbiter of when somebody is wronged. And what the city did was was underhanded to try and stop the tort from proceeding. I don't get how the appeals court can say, no, you can't make that ruling. Of course you can make that ruling. This should be going to a trial. Contract law was a, a big point of discussion when this hearing happened last October, and that's got wonky different rules. The city, I think, essentially argued that by being customers, folks agreed to the terms of their service, and because city council change the terms of those service, it's good to go. I'm kind of scratching my head here too, but. But but you can change the terms of service going forward, but changing the terms of service retroactively, it just seems so under, it seemed underhanded when they did it. The court ruling seemed appropriate um, and I'm baffled by what the appellate court has done here. I imagine this will go to the Supreme Court and who knows what those wacky justices will do if it does. Plaintiffs don't know if they'll appeal. We'll have to see where it goes, but there will be one trial on this right now, it sounds like, and then one later on the actual merits of the case. <laughs> and we should point out that this lawsuit, even though it's to get ratepayers' money, will end up costing them because whatever they win, the lawyers get a third of it, and then the utility will put that bill onto the ratepayers. So it's a stupid lawsuit on on the face of it. You're listening to Today in Ohio. That's it for Wednesday. Thank you, Laura. Thank you, Courtney. Thank you, Lisa. And thanks to everybody who listens. <laughs>